If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. On today's episode of the podcast, I've got Nat. Nat lives in Melbourne and had quite a long battle to end up with her two beautiful boys, Hudson and Harry. So welcome to the podcast today, Nat. I would love to start off by just understanding the journey that you went through of how you decided to become a solo mum by choice. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, so I was pretty young when I was diagnosed with um, technically infertility issues, but at 17, you don't think of them as infertility issues. Not at 17, um, no. No, although it was recommended at 18 or 19 that I have a baby, which I'll get to, but I was like, this is a good story. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my mum was uh, when I was about 15, 16, my mum actually had some gynae issues. She had a major surgery. Um, so that was the same GP that looked after me. And I never really got a normal period. I, it was always bedridden pain, um, days off school, uh, just a lot of pain associated with my periods. I didn't grow up realising that it was abnormal because my mum had gone through it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, 17 I was accepted off to university and as I was going off to university I was like I'll just get the pill and a few other scripts you know do that little checkup and mum had been pestering me we'd been running late and um didn't have time to go to the toilet so as I went into the GP I had this funny feeling that I had in my belly which I'd been having for a few months and not really mentioned it to anyone and so in passing on the way out, I said, hey, by the way, I've got this funny bump in my belly. And so he laid me down on the, um, you know, the bed and palpated a three and a half kilo ovarian mass and was like, what? Wow. Where's your mother? Go get her now. Um, so long story short, within a week that was removed um, by a laparotomy. So a cesarean type scar. So I actually um, already had one of those incisions. and. The next 10 years kind of unfolded a lot of endo, a lot of adhesions, a lot of cysts. I'm really good at making like 10 centimeter cysts, really good at them rupturing. (laughs) Great life skill, really good at them rupturing at work, finishing the shift, going to hospital, that kind of thing. (laughs) So I was very good at the pain, got used to it. Um, So I just kind of for 10 years on and off had surgeries and kind of knew every single time I went to my doctor he was like you know pregnancy will probably manage this it will you know probably ease it it side note it has funnily (laughs) enough managed a lot of the pain um but he said getting pregnant the longer you wait the harder this is going to be um so having your mid-20s that having these conversations this was these were conversations started at 18 17 18 The longer you wait, the longer this is going to be difficult. He said, every single time I go into do these surgeries, it's more and more riddled. And as the years went on, bowels got twisted into it. Other parts of my abdomen, adhesions on my um, abdo wall. So I could actually feel them like on my stomach, Um, like pulling kind of, I don't know. Remember the pulling sensation that you have with the cesarean, like a couple Mm -hmm. of days post? It's like that. There's like something stuck there. All the time or Um, just when you've got your period? 
all the time randomly just like every now and then I just get a tugging sort of feeling so it was pretty decent and I spent my whole entire 20s like anyone else dating hoping to find someone but I was always dating to find someone to get married I was never dating to find someone I was dating to get the baby um and I don't have a great track record in dating (laughs) (laughs) uh I don't say it lightly but like if anyone knows me personally they know that my experience with men has been far far from good um have had some pretty shitty situations and so I turned 30 and the the last guy that I'd been dating who had again suggested children suggested marriage just literally up and left one day and was like done with the relationship um didn't even hear a text message like afterwards kind of thing it was like I I walked out of the breakup still asking the question did we break up like I wasn't sure that's how like (laughs) stupid he was um one I think right I escaped that one but again a similar thing had happened a few years earlier and it kind of occurred to me I don't care if you leave me that doesn't bother me but what if you left my child like what if you just up and left because this had been the fourth maybe the fourth person that had mentioned having children with me um and it was the fourth person that had just up and left like there was there was nothing to to stay to stay for um what if that was my child and it kind of started sort of the churn churning of the wheels of like do I actually need the relationship to get to the baby or can I do this by myself? Um, So I was probably 30 and I knew if I waited until I was 35, that's it. Like that ship would have sailed personally for myself. Yeah. Um, And that was maybe years of my IVF specialist, uh, my OBGYN, excuse me. Um, But he was right. Like, and I'll explain that. So, 30, 31, I sort of investigated these uh, I guess things. I remember following another solo mum like ages ago and she's got two children now. Uh, but it was years that I've been following her for just secretly kind of, you know, in the Instagram, like dark, looming, just seeing how it works and stuff. Um, unfortunately, her journey was a long one. And so I had been following for quite some time before she got pregnant with her eldest. Um and so it was just interesting. She was always there. I don't, I don't think I ever reached out to her until like much further into her journey, but I was always watching, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then my brother got married the year I was 31, I think, 31 or 32. And I remember, you know, the whole wedding being beautiful and I just felt nothing. <laughs> Sounds terrible. And I didn't wish for it. And I had my sister sitting next to me, you know, wishing she was getting married. Like she really, really wanted the white picket fence and the husband. And I remember just thinking, "Mm, I don't know if this marriage thing is actually for me. Um, Love seeing people get married, love it for them, just not for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the next day I'd bought a new camera to sort of play with at the wedding to take some photos. And my sister-in-law's nieces were probably I can't remember how old they were but maybe three and five kind of thing at the time and they asked me to show the camera and we went for a walk on the beach and that 15 minute interaction just happened to happen the same weekend that I was like marriage is not for me but if I miss this baby boat I'm going to be heartbroken I'm going to be devastated I'm not going to be able to put that one aside um and I told my sister-in-law's sister this that she's the reason I decided to (laughs) have babies and she's the reason as well like that I'll probably have a third I'd say (laughs) um because her advice without being advice if that makes sense um has always kind of rang true to me so yeah it was watching these little girls like look up to me and me teach them how to use this camera and just you know 
just that moment just kind of honed into me like this is what I want to do um, and my girlfriends had been having babies for 10 years so it wasn't news to me I was always the favorite aunt and I was always really good around kids and um, always babysitting and stuff like that so I assumed that I would be a mother I just didn't know how that would look and I even remember early early days like 17 18 I don't know if anyone else that's had fertility issues ever kind of like maybe secretly wished that they were pregnant accidentally. Like they were just like, Oh, just kind of daydreaming, I guess. What would that look like? Um, so yeah. And I had like, I, I had plenty of boyfriends where I should have accidentally ended up pregnant and never did. And that was probably another sign that I should have realized. So I think I turned 31 ish and then I started looking into IVF and I hadn't told anyone not even my parents not a soul um just decided to go to the appointments and see what was possible um didn't really do my research on the first IVF specialist that I went to which was my mistake and I would recommend anyone to really ask around uh what who how and honestly go to a couple appointments I went to this one particular specialist, thought that that was a right fit for me. I actually chose a female thinking that she would understand. <laughs> that was a dumb choice. <laughs> um, and funnily enough, the, the two specialists afterwards have been men and one of them's quite older. One of them, um, they're both amazing. So definitely do your research. Go to a couple of appointments. Go to a couple of different clinics. Like, you know, there's obviously Monash, Melbourne, go to the different ones there's new life that I recommend a lot of people to um that's where my specialist went on to but look at the prices look at all the things when I first started donor sperm was really only available kind of at Monash and so I was pretty limited um Melbourne had a little bit but it was not as accessible to me at the time um so now we have a few options go to a few different specialists ask the question like if my no one goes into IVF thinking that um, they'll need donor eggs or donor this or surrogates or anything, but go ask those questions because currently my, my little embryos are held hostage at one particular clinic and I can't move them. I cannot move them. Um, so you have to really be confident that that's where you want all of your treatment to be. So she spent probably 15 minutes I'm not joking, maybe 15, didn't really do much um, in the, the appointment, put me on a stock standard retrieval process um, and that was that. And so I obviously had long-standing endo and I didn't realise there was protocols out there for endo. Right. Uh, again, just research and knowing it. And IUI was scrapped straight away because there was just no chance that anyone wanted to touch me with 17 years I think it was like nearly seven yeah it was four yeah 15 years at that point of endo no one thought an IUI would work um and it wouldn't have it turns out my tubes were blocked mm. so both fallopian tubes were blocked somewhere I don't know when we found that confirmed one was blocked I think prior and then they confirmed it the next surgery that I had which I'll explain so had an IVF Egg, full egg retrieval um, and got some great egg numbers, like 24 or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it went down hill real fast. <laughs> so maturity, which is very common for endo patients, um, maturity was my biggest problem. So by the time I got to actual fertilisation, I was down to six. So six okay. of them fertilised. And then... At the end of day five, I was left with two um, and they weren't quality enough to freeze. So they said, we'll, literally this was kind of their mentality, we'll throw them back in you, but we don't have any hope at all that this will turn into a pregnancy. Um, they had so little hope in them that they agreed to put both back in at the same time. Um, that's how little they thought it was going to happen and I think sometimes the worst you know in our minds we think the worst thing that could happen is that they don't stick and uh, that's not true that's not true in my history at all people have some misconceptions about pregnancy and 
um, stuff. And there's always an alternative, which I'll hopefully share with that <laughs> this this podcast. But anyway, I lo and behold got pregnant with both. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and then one split. <laughs> so there was a triplet pregnancy at one point. Um, and then as soon as I found out I was pregnant, it all kind of came crashing down at the same time that the um, trip, the twin part of pregnancy was actually in my fallopian tube. Um, so I found out I was kind of pregnant at the same time. The conversation went something along the lines of, you're pregnant, you're not taking home a baby. And I was like, what? How is that? I didn't even know that that was an option. Like, you know, first time going round. Um, my beta just wasn't rising properly. So I thought it was a late implanter. Uh, the specialist that I was with was happy just to let me be uh, and stop taking my medications and then um, just have whatever, just, you know, let it go. Uh, and then I got some pain like a couple of days later and went back to, I had to go to the emergency department because the pain that I was getting was a bit unusual and lo and behold the beta had increased and it was like hang on a second you said that this wasn't going to increase I'd already stopped my medications and stuff like that so I had to advocate pretty strongly for myself which it doesn't matter if you're paying for a service if it's free whatever it is you still have to advocate for yourself in getting yourself pregnant and then staying pregnant um anyway so a good couple of weeks passed of second daily beaters and stuff like that it was a bit of a hellhole um and then to find out yeah I was having an ectopic and there was still one in the uterus which was technically technically called a heterotopic pregnancy where um they're both in different parts and usually it's a non-viable pregnancy uh so I had the surgery to remove the ectopic side of things and then um with the hope that the one in the uterus would continue growing because one of them was growing strong like it was really weird one of them was doubling their betas but they couldn't figure out which obviously pregnancy it was and so by the time yeah by the time it was all finished uh, I think it was like a month later so like yeah eight weeks of IVF retrieval yes no yes no you're pregnant yes no yes no surgery yes no you're pregnant yes no miscarriage so it was a bit of a just shit show and the specialist that I dealt with during that whole time was terrible she was like you're not having an ectopic and (laughs) yeah I am like another (laughs) doctor said straight away like this is what's happening um anyway so they caught that before it burst or anything like that though yes yeah only because I was advocating for myself and saying something's not right I don't care what you say something is not right this pain there was a a weird niggle feeling like in my back in my lower back Mm -hmm. and thankfully one of my girlfriends had had an ectopic recently and it was it's the only friend I ever have ever known that's had an ectopic and we happened to have them at the same time like it's crazy so that happened I, I'm one of those people that once I, I didn't really want to deal with it and so I just went straight back to the a different specialist um did some research found a new person I, I think I was still technically miscarrying when I was like signing up for the next round of egg retrievals I was like nope I'm not do I'm not dealing with these emotions um probably not ideal I would recommend dealing with your emotions because <laughs> that just kind of bottles up um and then straight into an egg retrieval with my next specialist. Uh, and the results started to look really similar. And I was like, this is not going to work for me. Uh, and sure enough, 24 down to six, I was, you know, six fertilized. This is just going the same results. Yeah. Um, but funnily, weirdly enough, I don't know, uh, he put me on like, I'd been on three months of testosterone, progesterone and melatonin prior, like a huge protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, but the five, so I think six fertilized and five made it to day five. Oh, wow. Which That's was good. just insane. Um, still the worst quality embryos you could make, <laughs> which I laugh about now because I look at my children. Yeah. Um, but the worst quality. So some clinics wouldn't even freeze what I had and some would have just thrown them out. Um, and... I didn't send them to PGS testing because it was kind of like, we're not sure if they'll survive that. We'll freeze them, but we're not sure what the the thaw process will be like. Um, So I had a fresh transfer and got pregnant with Harry. 
which was amazing. Uh, so a few months of just back to back and all that crap. Uh, he ended up having, in comparison to Hudson's pregnancy, a very just, yeah, I had hyperemesis, but diagnosed with a subchronic hemorrhage uh, at eight weeks to 16 weeks. So I had some decent bleeds there, uh, like change your pants <laughs> kind of bleeds. Those were fun at work. Um, and then, yeah, it was I tracked along pretty good. Um, and he just kept doing these reduced movements situations. So by the time I was 37 weeks, he'd reduce his movements on three or four separate occasions mm-hmm. where they were well aware, they agreed that he'd reduced his movements. They just weren't sure why. Um, and there was a point where I was getting checked at 35 weeks, I think 35 weeks. And I'm in this like little tiny assessment room. And all of a sudden this midwife just like hits this button and I'm a nurse. So I know, I know what's happening. You know the button. Wrong and she just, I know the button. She's hit it and screamed down the hallway for her nurse in charge. And then at the same time, like all these people have run into the room, flipped me into a weird position with like legs and weird. I don't even remember. I was like, what the is happening? <laughs> um, and they're like, prepper for theater, prepper for theater. And I'm thinking, no one even knows I'm here. <laughs> no one knew that I'd come to the hospital. And I was just like, ah! And then all of a sudden he started, he either reduced his movements and his heart rate lowered so much that they thought like he needed to come out right that second or, and then they got me back into a position. So we weren't sure what he was doing, but he was blocking off his own supply at, somehow, um, like his umbilical cord. Yeah, little cheeky bum. Um on one ultrasound, they actually saw him squeezing his umbilical cord. And so they figured he was, yeah, they figured he was doing something and it just happened to be caught on this CTG monitoring system at 35 weeks. Um, so I think that was the point, that was the time where they, because they got a scanner on straight away and they realised he was squeezing it or something. And then there was another time where his foot was pressing on it or something. Um, he was also a big baby. He was always a hundred percentile. Um, anyway, so at 37 ish weeks, they said like, let's get this kid out. Like there's no point. We don't know what he's doing in there. <laughs> uh, so the week prior to him being delivered, I got a few stretch and sweeps. They did a lot of tests, a lot of CTGs, a lot of the ultrasounds and blood tests and stuff like that to make sure he was okay because statistically, uh, so reduced movements is definitely something that I'm strongly passionate about. Your baby should never reduce its movements. Um, it should never. It doesn't run out of room. They don't slow down in labour. They don't, there's a reason that they're reducing their movements. And so seeking that those professionals their help can really decrease uh the risk of stillborn babies like that we know that and so that's their only form of communication is their movements and it's not even so much how many they're kicking it's their pattern if their pattern has been established between 24 and 28 weeks and if that pattern is not their normal behavior then get it checked out um Every midwife you speak to and OBGYN is more than happy to look into it for you. They did all these tests. They couldn't figure it out. They figured out when he was born <laughs> why um, he had it, had the cord around his neck as well. And he was just, ta- he was tangled up in this cord of his. They'd been doing some stretch and sweeps and I had been uh, slightly dilating. I'd been having contractions. Um, so on the Thursday, I went and had a really big walk with my dad um, and we walked around this place near our house, walking our dogs. Mm-hmm. And every 15, 20 minutes, I had to stop and because I had a stitch. A stitch. I right. thought it was a stitch. I thought it was yeah. a stitch. I was about every yeah, 10 Did, minutes. Can you like, say you're rubbing the stitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I was rubbing the stitch out. I was like, oh, God, that stitch is so annoying. I thought it was just because we were walking completely in denial. I, I hadn't told my parents that I um, was going in to get, an in, like, to get an induction on the Thursday night. So I just thought I'd go in for this walk with Dad. Anyway, I threw up on the walk. <laughs> Still didn't think anything of it. No, and my just dad all this exercise. My mom. <laughs> Correct. 
and I'd been walking, I'd been walking really well throughout the whole pregnancy. Like I was walking the dogs for an hour each day. Like that was my one thing I knew I could do. Um, and my dad goes home to my mum and says, I think she's in labor, but I don't think she knows it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that was probably right. So I get to the appointment on the Thursday afternoon, by the way, I haven't told my parents that I was going in for an induction. Um, and cause they were inducing because of his movement. So that's why they were trying to get him out and they do the stretch, the examination to like put the balloon in and they're like, you're four centimeters. I was like, Oh, and she's like, did you, can you feel that on the machine? Like, can you feel that? And she's like, and there's a contraction clearly on the, on the screen. I was like, well, yeah, I I just thought it was a stitch. And she's like, no, that's a contraction. I was like, oh, well, that's great. Cause all I had heard is that contractions are like period pain, but worse. Right. Mm -hmm. They weren't even at my period pain level yet. You're not normal, so, obviously, for that part. <laughs> mine are not normal. Anyway, so they sent me home on the Thursday night and said, um, come back in the morning, set you up for an induction. So they did that. Uh, it was a very textbook induction. Uh, broke my waters at like 8.30. By 11.30, I'd asked for an epidural. I hadn't progressed anything from the 8.30 to the 11.30, but I was kind of like a four to five when I started the induction. 11.30 got the epidural by 2.30 I was fully dilated but it surprised them because they went to do like the checks between um between shifts and found me fully dilated and I I'd learned from someone else don't say anything just don't say anything if you feel pressure and things like that down there don't say anything until it's too not not too late but like until you really have to say something I'd been feeling it I'd feel like you know but I didn't say anything. Um, sure enough, I was fully dilated. Uh, so that was pretty, pretty decent, three hours. Um, and then they give you an hour to let you rest and then push in. So I pushed for like five, five times in, in total. Mm-hmm. And he was out, gave me a decent pair, which I've learned now why. Uh, just because I just didn't know how to push effectively and didn't probably wait the time and things like that. Um, he had a tear. Uh, he was out at four kilos. So he was a nice big baby, four kilos. Um, and then everything went really perfectly well for the next 12 hours, I want to say. Yeah, 12 hours. So he, he was born at four, four o'clock on the Friday afternoon mm-hmm. and eight o'clock Saturday morning, I was off home. I was like, get me out of here. I'm a nurse, but I hate hospitals. <laughs> um, and then that was on the Saturday morning. On Sunday, the midwives came to check him is about 36 hours old and we'd had the typical rough night uh of you know just some cluster feeding and things like that and so I was like oh have I made a mistake (laughs) can I put him back can I put him back in there like this is this is a bit rough um and yeah because we were breastfeeding and stuff like that so he he was he was just on me the whole entire time uh and then yeah the midwife came over on the sad sunday and um, she explained she just wanted to get him reviewed from a pediatric doctor and i i was like oh sure no idea what that meant i did but i wasn't you know i was like oh okay he's ticked a box somewhere she just needs a doctor to look over it which is pretty pretty stock standard for medical worlds Anyway, we get to emergency because of his age, he was considered like a cat too, which means they're seen within 10 minutes. So within 10 minutes of being in the department, we were surrounded and within 10 10 more minutes, I realized he was being worked up for sepsis, um, which is blood poisoning. And I was like, why is he getting a septic workup? And then realized things were going downhill pretty fast. Um, So he developed TTN, which is a transient tachypneic of the newborn. So pretty much like a lung infection, like a respiratory breathing type issue. Um, Fluid on the lungs, sorry, fluid on the lungs. Um, So he developed sepsis from that, which is funny that he got that because most of the time vaginal births aren't TTNs. Uh, It's usually a cesarean complication. Um, Anyway, it was also like I did learn though because of his gestation, he was just in that category of, being more susceptible to it um at he was born at 30 
he was 38 and three. So yeah, apparently by like 39, 40 weeks, they're less likely to get it. Um, so anyway, he was in uh, special care for four days, getting all of the tests and antis that, you know, you just don't expect your newborn to get and um, some heavy duty antibiotics. And he was obviously in a bed, like in a little isolate. And I just wanted to hold my baby. I just wanted to go home and hold my baby. And I just, anyway, ripped, that was ripped away from me. Um, it was, it was sad. And so by the time I got home, I was like, I don't want anyone else around me. I just want to bond with this baby of mine. Um, and we did, we spent the next several months just being the two of us uh we breastfed for about six or seven months and I have to laugh when I say this now that he used to breastfeed like every two hours and it was just too much and now I have a toddler who asks for food every 30 minutes and I'm like can we go back to the every two hours (laughs) uh but yeah he was he ended up wanting to cluster feed overnight and not feed during the day which is a very developmentally normal thing uh, but it was just too much for me and I didn't really have the best support and the understanding. I knew about it next time and it same thing happened. Um, six months, they just go through these little want to eat all night, don't want to eat during the day and it's a lot. He didn't sleep through the night till he was like 18 months old. He was still drinking 1.2 litres of milk at one. He is just a very hungry child. <laughs> I mean, he's three next month and he's already 18 kilos. Like he's a he's just a very solid boy but you've seen him like he's not there's no chub on him he's just muscle like he's a unit um yeah so we had a fairly uneventful first eight months of his life and then obviously COVID happened when he was about eight months old um which was scary I think any solo parent that was in either in the middle of being pregnant just had a newborn whatever you were there was an element of fear because I think solo mums are always a bit scared of dying like mm-hmm. and leaving our children behind. And then we face with the pandemic of like, well, what happens if something happens to me? Like who's going to look after my child? And hospital is always something that worries me having to break up my family unit. And I sh- I'm sure it happens. I think it's one thing that people maybe don't think about before becoming a solo mum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's huge. Like going to hospital for a married parent looks like one goes to the hospital, the other one stays home with the other baby or you switch. Um, but when your child is sick and all they want is you, you can't really swap with a grandparent or something like that, that you have to be with them. As Harry turned one, I thought, hmm, maybe I could do this again. Mm-hmm. Uh I assumed he was my one and only. I didn't go into this process thinking I was going to be a mother of multiples, multiple children. Um, And then he turned one and I'm not going to lie, he was an easy child. He was a very easy child. Um, Apart from sleeping, not sleeping, I should say. And eating the world. (laughs) Exactly. Apart from like regularly needing to be fed and not regularly sleeping, uh, he was a really good child. Uh, not I shouldn't say it like that but he was easily he was an easy kid to parent I didn't I didn't have someone climbing on my tables I didn't have a you know a hurricane in my house um and he still all sense of security didn't he did lull me into a false sense of security so he was never even toddler wise I could count on one hand how many proper tantrums he's had um that's the kind of kid he is, very gentle, very soft, still a psycho sometimes, but, um, you know, he's, he's a bit like that. So he did fall. I knew children weren't like that, though. Like I knew enough parents and I'd heard enough to realise that they're not all like that. Um, so I knew that the next one could be different. So anyway. When he was around, he was coming up to turning one, I broached the subject to my parents. What if you, what if I made him a sibling? And they were fully on board the first time, like fully on board. They were like, yeah, that makes sense for you. Um, and the second time around, they were even more on board. And oh, I thought. That makes a massive difference. 
what? I thought I was so nervous to tell them about the second. Um, they're not on board about a third though. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, just wait. <laughs> Which is funny. Um, so they were really excited for me to have a second. So I thought, okay, well, I better get on this sooner rather than later because I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, I didn't really want a small gap, but I didn't want a really huge gap as well. Like I didn't want sort of two, three years between them. I should say two and a half to three years between them. I wanted sort of more two years. Um, so when the masks got mandated in that same sort of few months, I'd been trying to get my embryos moved from one clinic to the other clinic, but we couldn't get a hold of my donor to do the consent. Oh, they have to consent, do they? Okay. Yeah, they have to consent for transfer to a different clinic because obviously their medical records go over to that clinic. We could not get a hold of this guy the whole for three months. And I was like, if you won't even look at Jamail and you're in a lockdown, like you can't leave your house. <laughs> like, where is this guy? Um, and anyway, the head of transport at the clinic, um, was kind of like, look, I, I don't want to, I, I sometimes come up against these issues and the more we push sometimes, the more we get a little bit of pushback and hence he could just renege his consent, consent at any time, which means you don't even get an option of a second, never mind where to transfer them sort of thing, um, which I didn't even sort of realise at the time how different the consents kind of can work. Um, so which, yeah, the next sort of step was kind of getting lawyers involved and like registered sort of, we'd already sent registered mail, but to sort of like serve him papers. And that just kind of felt like if he doesn't want to communicate about these, like the, the sperm that he's donated, then maybe I just need to leave it and not bother kind of thing and just stay at the same clinic. Yeah. So I happened, my my good specialist had moved to a different facility. So I had an appointment with him and said, what do you want to, like, what would you do? And then I went back and found one of the other doctors. I don't want to name, mention the names too much. Um, found the original clinic and said to this doctor, this is what I want to do. Are you on board? I just have to do it with Monash. And he said, yep, not a problem. Uh, literally all of that went ahead during the cycle like the start my cycle had already started before we kind of got all of that sort of start sorted um so it came down to the the end wire and then we transferred and um he worked and I was like what all we did for that cycle was let me ovulate because after I'd finished breastfeeding, my period came back very regularly and very uneventful and it was surprising to everyone, so including myself. Um, so we all I did was ovulate, start progesterone and have a transfer. That was it. And I was like, this is not going to work. I'm a really bad tester. Like I'd tested on day four, day three and day four. So I knew both pregnancies, all four, all three pregnancies. I knew that I was pregnant on day four. Yeah. Um, and I was like, shit, <laughs> it worked. Put this t-shirt. This was on day four, right? So this is how early I told my parents. Um, I hadn't had a blood test or anything like that. And I showed, you know, put the t-shirt on Harry. And my it took my parents half an hour to realize what the t-shirt said. Um, and the reason I told them so early was because my history of ectopics and miscarriage and stuff like that, if there was something that occurred, I did need their help mm. at 2am in the morning. And I didn't want to ring them at 2am and say, PS, I'm pregnant, but there's also bleeding and I need to go to the hospital. So I wanted to cherish and just have a very happy moment with my parents and myself. And I'm really glad I did because so from that point till my 10 week, um, news we just were blissfully unaware and just blissfully thought that we were that I was pregnant and that it was really exciting and everyone was really happy and so I'm glad I shared early on his pregnancy mm -hmm. um, because we got some really good you know memories at 10 weeks I had this nip test because I wanted to know if it was a boy or a girl mm -hmm. that's all I wanted to know and my sister-in-law was meant to take the phone call of the gender reveal and I was just going to get the 
A-OK, that everything was okay. And then she was going to get the gender. I'd made pink and blue cupcakes that night, that day. Uh, we were all meeting together as a family and she was just going to be, a, you know, she was going to do the reveal sort of thing because I didn't really get to, the way I found out for Harry was um, his anatomy scan. So I kind of wanted the gender reveal thing, you know, it just, I thought it'd be exciting. And so I get a phone call and she introduces herself as the genetic counsellor and I, my heart just, my heart just dropped. Mm. And I thought, why is she calling me? Sorry. And um, anyway, she starts the phone call conversation, like confirming obviously who, who she's speaking to. And this was obviously during COVID, so there was no face-to-face conversations and stuff. Um, and she says, um, uh, your test has come back as an 87.5% chance of him having trisomy 13. No, she didn't even say he. She said the baby. Mm-hmm. And I remember halfway through the conversation, like, tell me the gender so I know what you, who you're talking about like just and I didn't get mad at her but I was like just what wait what is it a boy or a girl she's like do you really want to know I was like yeah like you're telling me the baby I'm carrying is probably going to die tell me what I'm having and she tells me a boy and I was like I just remember being like so excited that he was going to be a brother but then like same conversation you t- like I'd never heard of trisomy 13 like I didn't even know I, I was naive. I didn't know we were testing for that. I didn't know that there was a percentage of people that I didn't know. And so at the same time, she's telling me I'm having a boy. She's telling me that there's a 90% chance I'm not taking this baby home. And I don't even think, I, I, I didn't take a lot of the conversation, obviously. And I just remember thinking like Harry's at daycare. And so I just called, I, I think I tried to call my parents and I was like a hysterical mess. And I just said, pick up Harry, pick up Harry, pick up Harry. And I just remember my dad, like, just being, I think it's like, it's hard enough to hear it as a parent, but like to watch your child go through it. Like now that we're parents, like I can't even imagine my child going through that. Never mind myself. Cause like, you don't mind what you go through. Sorry. You don't mind what you go through, but watching your child go through something like that. And like he said, I think their fears of me having a third. No, not I think. Their fears of me having a third is that what if that happened again? And dad said on the weekend, like, but what if we don't end up with a hoodie? Like, what if we, you have to go through worse? Um, anyway, so the, I remember, I remember throwing those cupcakes in the bin so, like, ferociously, so ferociously because I was so mad at them. I was so mad at these cupcakes. cupcakes. Yeah, I was, like, so mad at my just wanting to know the gender and then finding this news out. Um, Anyway, so I had to wait a couple weeks for an ultrasound. And I remember searching high and low, just trying to find someone who got this result but took home a baby. Yeah. And I I searched all over the world and I could not find anyone on social media or any real good statistic that said, yes, people have gotten this result and no, and yes, they've walked home with a baby. So I tried really hard and I remember going to Australian birth stories and I remember trying to like look it up because um, trust somebody 13 and trust somebody 18 are life limiting. Uh, I didn't... I don't, I'm a nurse and I still didn't know this, but the smaller number of the chromosomes, so like one through, you know, 22, um, is actually like the smaller the number, the bigger the impact on the body. So if you've got a chromosomal issue at like on chromosome five or six, it's usually life limiting. Uh, anywhere up to about, they say, 17. So 17 and below is usually a life limiting diagnosis. 18 and above you tend to have um, some pretty decent like conditions that often they can survive a little bit longer. When you're talking about trisomy 13, you're talking about delivering a baby and if you don't do any medical interventions, within three days they will have passed away. So it wasn't even like they were telling me that it was a condition that they could 
cure. It was if you have this baby, it will die. Um, and it was like, oh, right. I didn't even know. Like we fear Down syndrome, you know, like a lot of people fear Down syndrome um, and they're scared of it. I get it. Uh, but I was praying that they were wrong because one of the one of the situations that it could have been was Down. I was like, please just give me a Down baby. Like just switch the diagnosis. Tell me it's a, tr- you know, a different trisomy. Like just tell me it's a different trisomy. And I remember reaching out to my girlfriends who'd had like had, had, you know, been teachers for years, have you ever dealt with a trisomy 13 baby? And they're like, no. GP, no. no. besides you? No, mm. no, because they die so fast. They either die in utero or by the time they're born, you don't take them home from the hospital and no one knows they even existed. And that was probably the hardest part to come to terms with was, is anyone even going to know he, he, he existed? Um, so I had an ultrasound at 13 weeks and the, the OBGYN was like, look, I'm confident, but I'm not sure. He's still showing soft markers in his heart. And so it was like, you get a bit of good news and you just get ripped back into like bad news. So pretty much from the NIP test results, there was never a good appointment until he turned one. I didn't walk out of an appointment with just good news. I walked out with bad, with scattered with a bit of good. Um, so I had an amniocentesis and I'm happy for anyone to reach out if they've gone through, if they're going through any of this, like if you want to know what amniocentesis is and things like that, feel free. So I had an amniocentesis, waited a few days for the results. They were very confident that the um, baby didn't have trisomy 13, that the placenta did. Wow, that, but that's it's quite different then, isn't it? Quite different, but they were also not sure what was happening because he was still showing soft markers. So soft mark, I don't know if people know what soft markers are, but it just means that it's markers on an ultrasound that indicates like their signs of a trisomy issue. So they were pretty confident it wasn't trisomy 13, but they also couldn't say with 100% con- like purity that they- this baby was going to be 100% healthy because they couldn't figure out what was happening to- with his heart. So there was also a few other issues which seemed minor at, you know, minor at the time, and I'm not going to mention them because it ma- makes me sound like they're-, they're not that big a deal. But for me and my pregnancy, they weren't a big deal because I obviously had other issues going on. So all of our appointments were like, you know, two hours minimum and, you know, I was having weekly appointments and I was seeing so many people and I was put on medication, I was put on aspirin. The biggest thing with having trisomy issues in your placenta is obviously your your placenta failing and your placenta doesn't fail usually before 28 weeks. So from 28 weeks, they were watching me like a hawk, making sure that any indication of this placenta failing. So we just kind of, took it week by week and I um, remember obviously I should mention like I was obviously offered a medical termination um, and I remember finding this woman and she said something along the lines of if he's going to be alive for this long I want to make sure I'm the one protecting him and that I can carry him and I'm going to spend every moment I possibly can and he can choose when he wants to leave this earth and that really sort of resounds like you know I was like, I know, right? Like I am the one that's just going to carry him and protect him the best I possibly can. And when he chooses, because that's how I raise Harry. Like I remember getting sort of like really annoyed that, well, I I should treat them the same. And I've been very responsive with Harry in my parenting approach. And if he needs something, I will attend to that. If he needs something at 2 a.m., he gets it. If he just that's just my my mentality as a parent so how could I go in just decide for myself that this wasn't gonna like I was more fearful of being nine months pregnant and someone asking about him and me having to tell them that he wasn't I wasn't taking him home and I was like well hang on a second I'm not parenting for them I'm parenting for him and so yeah I got I actually got a Doppler and I just listened to him every day um, I wouldn't recommend a Doppler normally, but I didn't think I was bringing home this baby. And so I just listened to him and I felt him move. And I actually got kind of really at peace when I'd made that decision and said, he'll be here for as long as he wants to be here. I can't, I can't force him to stay and I can't do anything. What will be, will be. Um, 
which I was weirdly calm about it. Like a lot of people asked and I didn't know if it was just like me being sort of PTSD mode or (laughs) whether or not I was okay. And honestly, I've had some, I have had a lot of life-threatening things happen to my children and I am very calm about it because at the end of the day, I don't have any control over how long they're on this earth for. I don't. Um, and so I can either sit and worry about it or I can just enjoy every moment I have with them. And so that's what I've sort of chosen to do. Um, so, yeah, we, we plotted along and then 35 weeks, oh, 34 weeks, sorry, 34 weeks and two days, I want to say, um, I felt those stitches again. And I was at work. Magic stitches. (laughs) Those magic stitches. And I thought, oh crap, last time this was me contracting. Anyway, off to I finished my shift, drove home, got showered, (laughs) called my parents, said, I think I need to go to hospital. Off I went. Um, and they were amazing because during all of this, it was obviously lockdowns and um ironically they wouldn't let me take Harry to any of the appointments not that I want to take Harry to any of the appointments um because you did need to concentrate so anyway get to the hospital sure enough I'm contracting thankfully my cervix is closed um and they just diagnosed it as threatened preterm labor uh he decided to then contract every single day for six weeks thank you Thank you, child. Just so that you know that I'm still here. Yep. Just so you know I'm right here. So I drove a couple of hours to still go to my friend's wedding. I was in her wedding, bridesmaid, 35 weeks, contracting all day long. <laughs> thinking, You're a machine. Please don't, please don't come today. Um, so by the time I was like 30, yeah, 38 weeks, I was, I was pretty exhausted. I was tired. I was sore. Just everything hurt in my body. And he was a big baby as well. So um, oh, at the 34 weeks appointment, when I was admitted in that with a threatened preterm labor, they um, noticed that his heart was skipping some beats. Um, so they, that's when his heart condition was diagnosed and he was, um, they were well, not diagnosed. They just knew that there was extra beats that weren't working. So it worked out that a third of his beats um, weren't effective beats. Anyway. Because of that, they were like, we, we can't really let you labour vaginally. Like, we can't let you labour. We're not sure what he's going to do. So let's, let's plan a cesarean. I was like, oh, okay, no worries. And it was going to fall on my grandmother's birthday, actually, um, which was really sweet. And I thought, yep, no worries. Um, and then the next day, like after that decision's all been made, the next day I developed preeclampsia symptoms. And I was just like, are you joking? It was also my birthday. <laughs> so I go to the hospital the midwife wasn't great she didn't think I was a preeclamptic or b in labor which is great because that's not really your decision to make and I was that patient that was told when you come in make sure the OB on call knows you're here so make sure you tell the midwife this and I told her that she didn't bother to follow up that information so by the time the obg found out that i was actually in the hospital with preeclamptic symptoms and with like laboring i was um cesarean in less than an hour so she wasted a lot of quite a lot yeah i was like mate i'm not being that patient like it's read my record all you would have to click on and see that i've had fifty thousand appointments and this pregnancy is not I've not seen a midwife. I didn't see a midwife at all for that pregnancy. I was considered complex care, which is higher than high risk. And it's a category where you get the OBG's phone number and midwife's phone number in a public hospital. Like, come on. Mm. That's how scrutinized my care was. Anyway, so within 90 minutes, and sure enough, he got, he was delivered at um, 11.04 p.m. on my birthday via an emergency cesarean uh, at 4.6 kilos 4.6 ouch 4.6 they checked him over at birth which was great um they said he was okay came straight to me so I get to like snuggle him and he was straight on the boob as well um and so that was at like you know midnight and then at eight o'clock peds came and reviewed him in the morning and was like oh oh, special care we go I was like oh you joking so we got like eight hours of just blissfully it wasn't blissful. I was in pain, but he got to just lay on me um, for that whole eight hours. He got 
transferred to special care and then it obviously just went downhill again. So he actually got diagnosed with TTN and sepsis as well. So, yeah, interesting again. So one to 2% chance of that happening. Got that. His heart obviously was the issue. Uh, and he then got diagnosed with some brain damage that had happened somewhere. No idea where. Uh, but he had some brain damage that occurred. Um, so that was all great. We spent a whole week in special care. He didn't get to meet his brother nor his grandparents. I was stuck in the hospital because COVID was changing their rules so fast. I was terrified to leave the hospital and then get locked out, if that makes sense. Like that was the decision I was being made. So I didn't see my toddler for a week. I saw him for like small increments here and there. Uh, but he was a hot mess, obviously, when I got home, um, went home. So we went, we left the hospital knowing that he had this heart issue. We had this brain issue and let's just see how it goes. So he had a lot of issues, um, breastfeeding because his, he wasn't able to suck, swallow, breathe properly. So he wasn't breathing properly when he was eating. There was a failure to thrive within like 10 days, um, and he had like all he'd had so many appointments speech di- dietitian uh there was obviously peds neurologist cardiologist like all these appointments and i just remember thinking i just want to take my baby home and just cuddle him and pretend like this is not happening so i got to walk home with a baby but no one again could tell me what this looked like no one could tell me if the heart was going to like was he going to have delays? Just again, it just felt like a constant, if that makes sense. So he's 13 months old now um, and he's thriving. He's, we've uh, fixed his heart for the moment. He was on medications for nine months, three times a day. Um, the cardiologist is now happy that we've kind of lessened the load on the heart. He was actually born with a left, an extra left ventricular node. So I explained it to people like he was born with an extra light switch in the house. And that light switch flicks on and off and just sends irregular beats. But he was um, doing it every third beat. So he was 36% of his heartbeats were not effective. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine being how exhausted he was. Um, and he, he he lulled me into a sense. Of, I thought he was going to be a quiet child. He didn't he didn't make any noise for four or five months. And um, I haven't stopped him. He doesn't stop crying now. <laughs> Um, but it was like he was a king in a past life and he is now in a peasant life and he really doesn't like that. But the bond between the two of them is pretty, pretty special. So, um, yeah, so health-wise he's done, he's done so good, uh, but it's obviously always in the back of my head because the doctors don't think he'll escape that diagnosis without some sort of deficit in some capacity we're just not sure what it looks like and so you're literally looking for like a needle in a haystack over a child's developmental years so zero to four yeah looking for something and and uh and to pounce on that early intervention so anyway i'm sure he's going to do great things in the world because he's very stubborn uh, very vocal very bossy uh and has a pretty cool zest for life with his personality very opposite to his brother uh is climbing on tables and just i'm pulling my hair out some days like oh my god what how did you make that mess in that amount of time um yeah so yeah that's this diagnosis where they said you probably weren't coming home with a baby and it's turned into that yeah and so i think yeah i think sometimes the gratefulness that i have is just is just obviously the trauma from that pregnancy is not even remotely being worked through i don't think anyone gets over being told you're not bringing home your your child um like there's a 90 percent chance you're not bringing home a child and then you are and you're like well how do i how do i live this this is a weird place to live like you know i'm so eternally grateful but I'm so terrified that something's just going to come along and take him away at the same time. So, um, yeah, and then it begs the question, what's in the freezer? <laughs> what's What else is, is there? Is, you know, where, so technically he was probably a mosaic embryo okay. um, because they self-correct. So the doctors seem to think that he was a mosaic. Um, and where there's a mosaic, there's usually abnormal. 
Um, and then the heart thing and the brain thing were just lightning strikes. They shouldn't happen to any subsequent babies. They were literally lightning strikes. I always joke that I just get all of the random possibilities of pregnancy. Um, and that's just me. But I think the craziest thing about the whole diagnosis of Huddy was that, as I said, 300,000 women have babies each year in Australia. 30,000, sorry, 30 will have a diagnosis of some sort of trisomy abnormality that's life-limiting. So whether it be 13, 18, 5, whatever it is, one gets to walk away with a baby. And you're the one. So I was I was that one. And it is that survive is it survivor's guilt or so that um yeah. yeah, what is it? It's that it's a really weird place to be in sometimes. Like I don't think too much of about it, but I'm that lucky one and I feel like I need to make that count. Um, and you feel a bit weird being that person that's won the lottery. Um, it just feels weird sometimes. So the upside is I did a podcast with Australian Birth Stories and because of that, I've had women reach out uh, and they've had healthy babies after having the MIT test results that I've had. Um, so if anyone does stumble up upon this podcast, I just you just want a slither of hope that you're taking home a baby at the end of it. Like that's all you're asking for is just a little bit of hope. And so the fact that I've been able to give a couple of women, like half a dozen women in a year, some hope just makes me like, okay, this was worth it. Like there was some positive to it. Um, and, and of those women, so if there was six women, five have taken home babies. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah, like it's just nice that you've been able to sort of form a little girl band that no one wants to be in because, yeah, I just feel like as well women that go through this don't want to talk about it and so I'm the one that wants to talk about it and make sure that everyone's aware that like those NIP tests, when you're going for those NIP tests and when you're going for those tests, just be aware of what they're actually testing for and how wrong they could be. Like, is there a percentage they'll be wrong? And what does that pregnancy look like for you if they are wrong? Um, and there can be a difference I, between the baby having the condition and the placenta having the condition as well. Just because you get can the result. The, just correct. Yeah. Yeah. The time, you've got to leave the time and make sure that they're right. The, the worst part about this whole situation is I was offered, offered a termination at 11 weeks and I can't imagine how many women have taken that, that option. It really will um, depend who's telling you the news, isn't it, and what your specialist is correct. like. Correct. Yeah. So if you've ever got, if you get that conversation, like my GP, love her, but wow, was she strong on the termination talk. Mm-hmm. Um it's a genetic counsellor that you want to speak to. Don't listen to your GP. This sounds terrible, but don't listen to your GP. Don't even listen to your OBGYN. Listen to a genetic counsellor. Seek one out. Anyone that does and runs the NIP test has to have a genetic counsellor on their books and it has to be free. So they have to be able to provide that service for you um, and speak to them about it because, a lot of the time, like my GP was a little misinformed in that she thought that this baby was going to last a year with the condition and what that would look like. That's not the case in most scenarios. It is literally a three, 72 hours kind of thing condition, not, you know, they'll get to five. Mm-mm. There's one child in all of the research that had partial trisomy 13 that has lived to about 10, and I wouldn't consider it to be... Um, a life that I could ever imagine for a child mm-hmm. and there's a lot of medical interventions involved with that child um, and so what does it look like and see whether or not you want that for your child and can handle that for your child um, and so I think it's important to go into this decision uh, knowing you can do it by yourself financially, physically, mentally, social, all of those things. And then if there is help, great, take it. But don't go into it relying on the help. So you've obviously been on a pretty massive journey. Do you think there's anything you'd do differently looking back now? Yeah, look up specialists. <laughs> like go to, a, go to a few appointments and go to different clinics. Um, that would be something I would do. I would make sure savings-wise you had like 
enough for two egg retrievals ready to go so that because you're going to want to do back to back if your first egg retrieval fails you're going to want to do a second one um they're about you know four to five grand out of pocket so my if you're going to ask my advice this is what i'm going to say have enough ready that you'll be out of pocket for two egg retrievals so that if that desire of just i want to keep doing this you've got it ready to go um, I'm a big debt-free believer, like a very big, like get rid of your debts before you go on mat leave, not before you get pregnant, but before you go on mat leave, because it really does open up your options to return to work. I didn't have to go back to full-term, like full-time nursing. I go back um, two to three times a week. So I'm only working five in a fortnight. Um, part of that is because my lifestyle is just I'm a more budget kind of friendly gal. <laughs> um, and then the other is that I don't have any pressing debt. Like there's no debts. So all I need to do is pay sort of the rent and the food, if that makes sense. Well, some really great tips, Nat. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm so glad after this battle that you've got your beautiful boys, Harry and Hudson. And who knows, hopefully number three to add to the episode in the future. I'm Alicia, and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, and leave a like, a review, or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.